letter written in verse by Lewis Carroll to his child friend Margaret Cunningham, Christ Church, Oxford, January the 30th, 1868. Dear Maggie, no cart has yet been done of me that does real justice to my smile. And so I hardly like, you see, to send you one. Meanwhile, I send you a little thing to give you an idea of what I look like when I'm lecturing. <laughs> the merest sketch you will allow. Yet I still think there's something grand in the expression of the brow and in the action of the hand. Your affectionate friend, C.L. Dodgson. P.S. My best love to yourself. To your mother, my kindest regards. To your small, fat, impertinent, ignorant brother, my hatred. <laughs> I, I, I think that is all. Well, that letter to Margaret Cunningham shows up two aspects of Lewis Carroll. First of all, his, his love of children and the fact that he was a teacher, and in fact, a teacher of mathematics. Uh, if he hadn't um, written the Alice books, he'd be mainly remembered as a pioneer Victorian photographer, as we'll see. And if he hadn't been known for that, he'd have been largely forgotten as an Oxford mathematician who seems not to have contributed much. But is that really the case? That's what I want to look at today. And I want to describe his mathematical life and, and works. Uh, don't worry, it's not this talk. Uh, it's a Sunday morning. You haven't got a lot of heavy mathematics to come. But certainly mathematics pervaded his life and works. And even, even the Alice books, as I'd like to remind you. For example, in the Mock Turtle scene, the Mock Turtle started... We went to school in the sea. The master was an old turtle. We used to call him Tortoise. Alice said, why did you call him Tortoise if he wasn't one? We called him Tortoise because he taught us. I only took the regular course, reeling and writhing, of course, to begin with, and then the different branches of arithmetic, ambition, distraction, uglification, and derision. And how many hours a day did you do lessons? Ten hours the first day? nine hours the next, and so on. What a curious plan, said Alice. That's the reason they're called lessons, because they lessen from day to day. <laughs> and in Through the Looking Glass, which was the sequel, uh, the White Queen and the Red Queen set Alice a test to find out whether she should become a queen. Uh, you may remember that, that Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is based on cards, whereas Through the Looking Glass is based on a game of chess. And um, the idea is that as the chapters progress, Alice starts as a pawn and then moves up right to the other end of the board and becomes a queen. But she can't become a queen until she's been examined by the White Queen and the Red Queen. And the White Queen said, can you do addition? What's one and 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 one? Poor Alice didn't know she'd lost count. She can't do addition. Can you do subtraction? Take nine from eight. Nine from eight, I can't, you know, but she can't do subtraction. Can you do division? Divide a loaf by a knife. What's the answer to that? Bread and butter, of course, was the answer. Um, but uh, anyway, the, the queens decided, came to the conclusion that, that Alice could not do sums at all. And another character that couldn't do sums um, was Humpty Dumpty. And in the original drawings of Humpty Dumpty, um, Humpty was represented as a, as a young boy. Uh, we, we always think of Humpty Dumpty as an egg, don't we? 
But that actually arose through the tenor drawings uh, for Alice. Uh, Humpty Dumpty pre preceded um, uh, Lewis Carroll, uh, but was always presented, uh, was not presented as an egg until after this, um, this book. Anyway, Alice is admiring um, his cravat. Here's Alice. Um, and as Humpty said, it's a present from the white king and queen. They gave it to me for an unbirthday present. So Alice says, well, what's an unbirthday present? A present given when it isn't your birthday, of course. I like birthday presents best. You don't know what you're talking about. How many days are there in a year? 365. And how many birthdays have you? One. And if you take one from 365, what remains? 364, of course. Humpty Dumpty's a bit puzzled by this and says, I'd rather see that done on paper. 365 minus 1 is 364. As he says, that seems to be done right, though I haven't time to look at it over thoroughly right now. <laughs> but you'll actually see this sum appearing in through the looking glass. Uh, if you look at it, you'll see it there. I mean, it's hardly a sort of higher mathematics, this, but uh, it's interesting that, that Carroll does bring in these mathematical ideas all over the place in his Alice books, and also in his other books that he wrote uh, for children. Um, many of you will probably know his long poem, The Hunting of the Snark. And uh, uh, in this, it's, a, it's, a, it's great fun to read. Uh, all the characters begin with a, with a bee. There's a bellman, and, and uh, uh, in this particular scene, the butcher is trying to convince the beaver that 2 plus 1 is equal to 3. And uh, in the verse, in, in the verse you'll, you'll get these particular stanzas. Two added to one, if that could be done, it said with one's fingers and thumbs, recollecting with tears how in earlier years it had taken no planes with its sums. Taking three as a subject to reason about, a convenient number to state, we add seven and ten, and then multiply out by one thousand diminished by eight. The result we proceed to, to divide, as you see, by 990 and 2, then subtract 17, and the answer must be exactly and perfectly true. Uh, that, of course, does not prove that 2 plus 1 is equal to 3. Basically, whatever number you start with, if you add 17 and multiply by 992 and then divide by 992 and subtract 17, you're going to get back to where you started from. Uh, but, but, but there we are. Uh, more substantial was his last... A um, couple of books for students, um, for, for, well, for children. Um, they're called Sylvia and Bruno and Sylvia and Bruno Concluded. Um, they're not recommended. Uh, they're not uh, a, a good read in any sort of sense. But there's a, a, there are a quite a lot of uh, things in Sylvia and Bruno and, and, and the sequel, the, the concluded one. Uh, there's a discussion of gravity. Uh, and it has some quite sophisticated ideas in it. Uh, and um, I thought I'd sort of show you a couple of the scenes. Basically, imagine yourself in a shady nook, and uh, Lady Muriel is there, being very English and, and hemming pocket handkerchiefs while she has her tea, and her father, the Earl, is, 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 is next to them. And up, up came a German professor, uh, Mein Herr, uh, German professors were very, very highly regarded in, in, in Carroll's day, and, and German professors feature more than once in his writings. And the German professor comes up and says, oh, ha ha um, hemming pocket hand handkerchiefs, are you? Uh, do you know that if you um, 
sew them up properly, you, you can create Fortunatus's purse. Fortunatus's purse has all the wealth of the world inside it. And basically the idea is that if you've got three pocket handkerchiefs, um, if you sort of um, sew them up, you get a sort of pocket. But if you give one of them a twist before you do it, then you actually get a mathematical surface called um, a projective plane, which has no inside and no outside, and therefore it has all the wealth of the world inside it. Some of you will know, have heard of a Merbius strip. You heard of Merbius strip? Um, uh, what, what, what do you call a one-sided whale? Mobius stick. Yes, we all know that one. <laughs> and why did the chicken cross the Mobius strip to get to the other? Uh, other um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the point about a Mobius strip. If, you, if you've never done this, if you've never done this, take a long strip of paper. Of course, if you glue, the, glue the ends together, you'll get you'll get you'll get a cylinder. But if you give a 180 degree twist before you before you join it up, you get this thing called a one-sided surface. It has no, it doesn't have two sides anymore, it only has one side. And uh, you might like to try this. Also, um, uh, if you draw um, a pencil mark all the way around, around the centre, you'll actually find that you cover well, both sides, except there aren't two sides. And another thing you might like to try is, think, uh, uh, and then cut it down, cut it down the middle. Uh, try to imagine beforehand what happens if you, if you cut it all the way around Around down the middle, what do you get? And then, if you're really good at thinking of things like that, uh, try it by cutting it a third of the way across and go all the way around uh, and uh, try to predict what you get. It's all, all quite intriguing. If you haven't done that, do try it uh, after the after the show. <laughs> but the point is, you're you're joining these up and you're twisting this around so that the arrows arrows meet. Now, the idea of a projective plane is that you do the same thing. You make a Mobius strip. You twist these, join them up. And then you join this one to this one, but instead of joining them straight away, you give this one a twist. Uh, don't try that at home. It can't be done in three dimensions, um, so you won't be able to do it in practice, but there's no reason why a mathematician shouldn't, shouldn't look at it. And it made a nice, a nice teaching point uh, in Sylvia and Bruno concluded. So, so Charles Dodgson was interested in, in, in mathematics uh, generally, and, and he thought that was a rather nice illustration of, um, of, of, of an important and interesting mathematical concept. Here's another thing from the same scene. Um, mein Herr says, there's another thing we've learned from your, from your nation, map making. But we've carried it much further than you. What do you consider the largest map that would be really useful? about six inches to the mile. Only six inches? Martin Hare said, we very soon got to six yards to the mile. Then we tried a map with a hundred yards to the mile. And then came the grandest idea of all. We actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to the mile. <laughs> it, it has never been spread out yet. The farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight. So we now use the country itself as its own map, and I assure you it does nearly as well. <laughs> <coughs> so there are all sorts of quirkiness uh, and whimsiness in the, in the Alice things, but there's some interesting um, sort of mathematical ideas in there, in there as well. Uh, but who was this uh, Lewis Carroll person we're talking about? who was Charles Dodgson, as was his real name. Well, he was born in 1832 into a good English church family in Darlesbury in, in, in Cheshire. 
His father, the Reverend Charles Dodgson, was incumbent until 1843, when they all moved to Croft Rectory in Yorkshire. Now, Charles Dodgson Sr. had been at Christchurch here in Oxford, uh, and he had got a double first. In those days, uh, everyone... uh, It's often said that it's Oxford for the arts and Cambridge for the sciences, which which has really never been true. Um, But the reason that arose is because if you did a degree in Oxford, everyone had to pass a degree in the classics, Latin and and Greek, before they could go to honours in any of the other subjects, the other subjects being things like mathematical sciences, the natural sciences and law. Um, Whereas in Cambridge, you could not get a degree until you had done a degree in mathematics. Everyone had to to pass an exam in in, in mathematics first before uh, they could go on to study the other other subjects. And that lasted for about 50 years. Uh, And so I think it's why it gave rise to that that myth. Um, But but certainly, uh, Charles Dodgson, uh, he took honours. He did the four-year course at Christ Church. He he got a first in in the classics, and then he got a first in in, in mathematics. And he stayed on as a student. The word student at Christ Church is what everyone else calls a a fellow. Um, And he, he stayed on, and he was able to stay on for life as long as he um, trained for the priesthood and he um, uh, remained unmarried. Um, But in fact, he decided he wanted to marry, and so he did marry, and he had 11 children, which was quite normal in those days. So most of the children were born in Darsbury in Cheshire. Uh, The last one uh, arrived while they were at Croft Rectory. Uh, And so... Charles Dodgson, the young Charles Dodgson, Lewis Carroll, uh, and his seven sisters and three brothers, uh, he was number three out of the 11, and he was the oldest boy. And, uh, and, and they had a very happy childhood there. Um, uh, he, as the oldest boy, sort of took on himself the mantle of, of entertaining all his younger brothers and sisters. He used to sort of dress up in a cape and do magic tricks for them, and he used to sort of make up sort of model railways and sort of thing. Remember, railways were just coming in then. Um, later on, he took up photography, and uh, here is a couple of his pictures. Here at Croft Rectory, you can see uh, this is later on when, when the, the girls had grown up a bit. Um, so this was a, a photograph that he took there. And here's one of his, I think it's a wonderful photograph, this of his two maternal aunts um, playing, playing chess. Anyway, he, he, was, he was very, very ha- happy uh, at, at Croft, and it was obviously where he developed his, his love of children uh, through providing entertainments for his young brothers and sisters. In fact, one very snowy winter, he created in the garden of Croft Rectory a very complicated maze, um, more complicated, for example, than the one at Hampton Court. And and then later on, um, for his younger brothers and sisters, he compiled this this maze here. Which is very interesting historically, because, uh, as you can see, there are paths that go over and under other ones. And I'm told by one of my um, maze expert friends, my amazing friends, that, um, um, that this is the earliest example known of a three-dimensional maze. So that was another of his innovations. Because his father, um, as I say, his father got married and so had to leave Christchurch and, and took over this church in, in Dalesbury where, where, where the young Charles was, was baptised and grew up. Um, uh, 
and, there was the, and the father's stipend was very small, so they were all, all, the, all the children were educated at, at home until they moved to Croft when the, the money was freeing a lot more and, and the boys were sent uh, to private school. And the young Charles was sent, first of all, to Richmond School. That's Richmond in Yorkshire. Croft, incidentally, is on the border between Yorkshire and, 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 and Durham. And, um, and it's about 10 miles from, 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 from Richmond. And so, so, so the young Charles went there before going to rugby. And, um, and he learnt the classics and mathematics from his father. Uh, the story goes that... Um, uh, the young Charles had learned about logarithms and said to his father, please explain lo logarithms to me. Um, and uh, the father said, oh, you're far too young to understand that. And he said, oh, but please explain it. Just to show the sort of um, um, how interested he was in mathematics, um, this was um, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, uh, bit of writing of the young Charles. I think it's remarkable for two things. First of all, and the handwriting is very good. This was a, he, he was 12 at the time as he wrote this. I don't know how many 12-year-olds uh, these days have got uh, handwriting as good as that. Um, and he set himself the problem to trisect a right angle, that is, divide it into three equal parts. Now, um, it's been known since the, the ancient Greeks... Well, the ancient Greeks had the problem of trisecting the angle. It was like sort of squaring the circle and doubling the cube. The three classical problems of ancient Greece, uh, you had to do it using just a straight edge and, and, and a pair of compasses. Uh, and uh, those problems, uh, it took 2,000 years to prove, actually to prove that they're impossible. But for some particular angles, like right angles, you can actually uh, construct, um, uh, um, you can divide into three, you can divide into, you can construct 30 degrees. And this is the first of two pages where he actually describes this construction. And again, I don't know how many 12-year-olds these days would, uh, would be able to do that. Anyway, he went to Richmond and then he went up to rugby, uh, rugby he um, didn't enjoy, um, he didn't like all the rough and tumble, he didn't particularly enjoy the sports, I don't think he enjoyed the sports at all. Uh, he, of course, as a young boy going in at 14, uh, the older boys uh, terrorised the younger ones. For example, the dormitories in the middle of winter, the, young, the older boys came and um, took away all, all the blankets and sheets and left the, the younger boys shivering while they, they kept themselves warm. And, and, and he certainly hated, hated all, all that. But, but he really did enjoy... Uh, the academic work, he won prizes in lots and lots of different subjects, uh, not just the classics and mathematics. And, and I've, um, when I was in New York um, a couple of years ago, I managed to see the actual maths book that he studied from. And it was his own copy because it has his, his, his plate at the front. Um, and so here are some of the problems that you will, have found, you will find in in the arithmetic text. The, the arithmetic text that he used, I think, at, at Richmond and certainly at Rugby, because um, the copy he's got is marked uh, 1845 when he was 13, um, so I, it must, he must have used it at Richmond too. Um, it was Francis Walking Games arithmetic text. That had been around for about a century and it had gone into oodles and oodles of uh, editions. Um, and so here are some of the problems that were in this book. Uh, and as I say, he was just 14. I don't know how many 14-year-olds these days could work out the cube root of this number here. 673373097125. Um, here's another one uh, on arithmetic. Um, London to York is 50 leagues. Do you know what a league is? 
A league is three miles, okay? So how many miles, yards, feet, inches, and barleycorns? A barleycorn, in case you don't know, is a third of an inch. And, and, uh, and uh, so the idea was to, was, 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 was to do all these calculations. Uh, it's, it's quite entertaining looking at this book, both for the sort of problems that were set to a, a teenager uh, at that time, and also some of them are delightfully uh, politically incorrect. Uh, let, me sh let me show you a few of uh, the more entertaining ones. Um, I don't know how many arithmetic books these days would say, what sum did that gentleman receive in dowry with his wife, whose fortune was her wedding suit, her petticoat having two rows of furbelows, whatever they are, each furbelows 87 quills, and each quill cost 21 guineas. 3836, quite expensive. Uh, here's another one that you wouldn't see in a modern arithmetic book. A gentleman going to a garden meets with some ladies and says to them, good morning to you ten fair maids. <laughs> so you mistake, answered one of them. We are not ten, but if we were twice as many more as we are, we should be as, as many above ten as we are now under. How many were they? Uh, and I'm sure a 14-year-old would really want to know that 110 and a quarter percent, what is the purchase of 2,054 pounds, 16 shillings in South Sea stock? <laughs> but my favourite one, which I challenge you to find in a modern arithmetic book, is the Spectators Club of Fat People, <laughs> though it consists of 15 members, is said to have weighed no less than three tonnes. How much was that per man? The answer is 400 weight. <laughs> So there we are. <laughs> anyway, at rugby, he won all the prizes, and, uh, and he, he then uh, the natural thing was to go up to Oxford and uh, to his father's college of Christchurch. Here's a picture of Christchurch in 1850, which is the year he went up to, uh, for matriculation. Matriculation was exams in, um, in, uh, in theology, in, in knowledge of the Bible, in Latin and Greek, and in elementary mathematics, meaning arithmetic and a bit of, of Euclid. I'll talk more about Euclid later. So this was Christchurch at the time. Uh, Christchurch was a bit full, so he, he wasn't actually able to go up until January 1851. And in fact, he had to return home after two days because his, his mother died unexpectedly at the age of 47. And so it was really a very bad start to his, his career. But he, did three, he had to do three exams. Uh, the first was responsions. Again, uh, uh, papers, this is a sort of hurdle which allowed you then to go on to do moderations, which is uh, the first major exam, and then finals uh, later on. And you could either be a sort of pass man or a class man. A pass man was someone that did a three-year uh, degree, and that was ma mainly for the hunting, shooting, and fishing types that came up to Christchurch, who were there basically because it's the next step up. They didn't intend to do any work. Uh, and, uh, and then the honours was the four-year course, which, which, which led to uh, where you had to do classics first, and then you went into these other subjects if you wanted, and, and of course he chose mathematics. Uh, but responsions, uh, he... Uh, uh, he had that, and it, it, normally one took that after about seven terms. He took it very, very quickly, within six months, uh, because, of course, he was very, very well prepared with all his, his, his schoolwork and his work at home. And, in fact, he wrote to one of his sisters, a um, uh, letter written in oldie Englishy uh, from, from Christchurch, June 1871. My beloved and thrice-respected sister... 
Onimuni, his day next day, we go in for responsions, and I am up to mine eyes in worky. Uh, uh, this is Sister Louisa, thine truly, Charles. Um, and I won't go into what this is all about. You'll have to buy the book to find out. <coughs> um, the teaching was done in colleges mainly. They didn't have the intercollegiate uh, lectures that most people had. That's not quite true. There were a couple of professors. Uh, the civilian professor of geometry, which is a, a professorship founded in 1619 by Saville of Merton. He founded professorships in geometry and astronomy, and they still exist today. Um, and, um, and the current holder in 1850 uh, was um, the Reverend Baden Pohl, and if that name rings a bell, it was his sixth son who founded the, the Boy Scout movement. Baden-Poe was more a sort of mathematical physics, physicist. In fact, he was really a physicist. And then there's the Sedlian professorship of applied mathematics, um, uh, and I'll tell you uh, about that uh, in a minute. But anyway, these professors, they gave lectures uh, to, the whole, to, to people studying in the whole university. But most of the teaching was done in college. Here is the Christchurch lecturer, um, Fawcett, his name was, and, uh, and he uh, got the lectureship in 1845 and held it until 1855 when he went off uh, to the Crimean War and, uh, and Dodgson took over from him as mathematics lecturer at Christchurch. What were the exams like? Well, some of them were written exams. Written exams, certainly in mathematics, came in in the 1820s. Uh, and everything got sort of more formalized then, and the new natural science curriculum, the whole science teaching was sorted out in, around 1850. That's when responsions uh, came in or, or were revised. And, uh, uh, but there's also uh, an element of, 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 of a viva, an oral examination. And I came across this wonderful cartoon um, or drawing of an Oxford viva examination, which looks absolutely terrifying. <coughs> Anyway, after he'd taken his responsions in the next year, 1851, um, he took his second, uh, 1852, he took his second Oxford examination moderations, and he got, a f uh, he got a second in classics and a first in mathematics. And he said, whether I shall add to any honours and collections, I can't at present say, but I think it's very unlikely, as I, ha I have only today uh, to get up works in the Acts of the Apostles, two Greek plays, and the satires of Horace his revision for one day, and I feel myself almost totally unable to read at all. I'm beginning to suffer from the reaction of reading for moderations. I'm getting quite tired of being congratulated on various subjects. There seems to be no end of it. If I had shot the dean, I could have had hardly more said about it. <laughs> anyway, he, he was made a student as his father, which meant that he, he was meant to, tra to train for the priesthood and remain unmarried. And that was for life. So he was able, for, from that time onwards, he was able to live in Christchurch for life. He had to support himself by doing private teaching, but that's later. Anyway, he didn't do so well in his classics finals. He, he got a third in that, which can't have pleased his father very much. Um, he was determined to do much better in his mathematics. And so in the summer of 1854, um, he went on a reading party with a civilian professor, the newly appointed, so sadly, um, uh, new, newly appointed Sedlian pro 
professor of natural philosophy, that means applied mathematics, who was uh, Bartholomew Price, uh, who was across the road at Pembroke College and, um, in fact, later became master of Pembroke College. He was also a very important figure in the Oxford University Press, uh, probably chairman of the delegates or something. Um, he, was, he, he was known as Bat Price, uh, pro, you know, an abbreviation of his, of his name, but it's also said that his lectures are way above the audience, so that's another reason for it. Um, uh, and, it's, and, and he is immortalised. Um, how, how many people know of the Mad Hatter? Okay, you're all wrong. There is no character in, in Wonderland called the Mad Hatter. Yeah, yeah, there is a, a hatter, and there's a mad tea party, but I, I challenge you to find a mad hatter. Anyway, the hatter um, in the tea party, um, at one stage there's, there's a skit on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, which went, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Bat, how I wonder what you're at. Up above the world you fly like a tea tray in the sky. And that bat is meant to refer to his, his, um, his mentor, um, Bat Price. Anyway, uh, finals were twice a year then, and uh, in, uh, in 1854 he took finals. This isn't actually the papers he took. The Bodleian had all the papers up to then and all the ones from then onwards. They didn't have the one I wanted. But, but this was a, a paper <coughs> actually set um, in the summer of 1854. There were, t he, there were ten papers, and I, I'm not sure whether he had to do all of them, but they started from geometry and algebra, and I'm not going to go through all this, um, but, uh, and then there's the calculus, and then there were sort of various applied math topics, astronomy, optics, and various other things of this kind. And I don't know whether he had to do all the papers, whether there's a choice, um, but anyway, there's certainly ten papers in all, and he did very, very well in that he came top of the list. And in fact, here is the class list of 1854, uh, you can't see it very well, but basically this is the mathematics bit, and there were five of them uh, who got first. Uh, four got seconds, no one got thirds. Um, uh, four got fourths, uh, and then the 35 got fifths. Now, <laughs> basically they were the past degree people, and, 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 they, and because they were all wealthy and had wealthy parents and were going to be give money to the university, uh, uh, they didn't want to upset them, so they actually gave them a, a class on the list of fifth. Anyway, uh, Dodgson came top of the list. Um, uh, he, he got the top, he was the top of these five, and uh, he said, um, I, I must also add, uh, as he wrote to his sister, I ought to get the senior scholarship next term, which he didn't. And one thing more I will add, I find I'm the next first class math student to force it, in that I stand next to the lectureship. And uh, in fact, uh, he, uh, so Fawcett went off to the Crimean War and uh, Dodgson himself was indeed appointed. So we're now in 1855 and the start of his, his career. This is Christchurch um, and, uh, and here's the famous hall, made famous of course through Harry Potter. Um, but uh, Dodgson, uh, 10 years before his, his before he died, he wrote to one of his young child friends and said, I've actually dined here 8,000 times. And uh, so this is obviously um, a, a hall that was very dear to him. In fact, I gave a version of this lecture in Christchurch Hall um, earlier this summer, uh, having sort of the portrait of Dodgson looking straight at me while I was doing it. 
uh, he, he, uh, there was a new dean appointed uh, in 1855. The old dean, Gaysford, died, and the new dean came in, whose name was Henry Liddell. And uh, Henry Liddell, Liddell had, uh, well, he was known uh, as a Greek, a Greek scholar. In fact, uh, anyone here study classics? Uh, Liddell and Scott? Yes, well, Little and Scott was the, was, a, was the famous Greek dictionary, which is still used by undergraduates today, even 150 years on, uh, and uh, a very, very famous uh, and important um, dictionary. Um, Little had come from being headmaster of Westminster School. He came to be dean of Christ Church, and um, one of the first things that he had to do was appoint the mathematics lecture, lecturer, and that was Dodgson. Now, Dodgson, of course, uh, all this time was supporting himself by private teaching, um, but uh, getting the lectureship was what he really wanted. And he started that officially at the beginning of 1856. Two other things happened in 1856. One is that he was writing comic verse and entertaining little bits of writing uh, for various um, magazines and, and, and so on. Uh, there's one called The Train, a first-class journal, um, and, um, he, uh, and he started writing all, all of these things, and he decided that for his non-mathematical writings, he would choose a pseudonym. He, he thought of Dars to start with, D-A-R-E-S, short for Darsbury, and there were various other ones, but eventually they came up with Lewis Carroll. And Lewis Carroll, of, of course, the Carroll comes from Carolus, which is the Latin for Charles, and uh, the Lewis is a corruption of Ludwig, which is his middle name and his mother's maiden name. So that's where the Lewis Carroll comes from. And so from then on, he used that whenever he was writing for children or whenever he was writing more popular things. The other thing that he took up was, um, uh, was photography. And uh, in fact, he, uh, he was one of the most important photographers of Victorian times. He was certainly the most important photographer of children. And, we, there, and the, there are about 3,000 photographs that, that have survived. Now, this is my favorite. And this was, um, <laughs> there, there was an undergraduate at the same time. Uh, he got, he got the, the photography bug. Photography had come in 20 years early, earlier, but it really hit, hit the big time in the 1850s, lots of amateur photographers. And it was very complicated. It, it, they used the old collodion pr process where you had to go into a dark room, mix your chemicals, take your plate, put the chemicals over this plate, and then, and, and then put them in the camera. And, then, and if I were photographing you, you'd have to stay still for a, quite a long time uh, while, <laughs> while I photographed. And then I'd have to sort of pull out the plate and then develop it and, and so on. It was a really complicated procedure and failures were, were frequent, uh, but um, we have 3,000, there are about 3,000 have survived, uh, of which 1,500 are, are, are of children. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very important, his photography, because uh, he, he photographed a lot of, a lot of the um, Oxford figures of his day. We wouldn't know what they looked like if it hadn't been for Dodgson taking it. And also important people of the day. When the British Association met in, in Oxford, uh, he, he, he had a photograph of, of Faraday. And, uh, and the photograph of Bat Price I showed you was his. Uh, he also um, photographed many artists, Holman Hunt, Millet, uh, the whole Rossetti family. And, and he, used, he used photography as a way of getting to meet the great and the good. It's often said he was very shy and didn't like meeting people. That's obviously not the case. He, he enjoyed um, 
uh, he wrote to Tennyson uh, in the Isle of Wight and said, would you like me to come and photograph your family? And, and so he used to go down and photograph the whole family and the children in particular. And a lot of these children's um, photographs are, are really wonderful works of art because he was probably the first person or certainly one of the first people to regard photography as an art. Instead of just taking a mugshot, uh, he actually uh, he used to pose uh, his, his subjects and also sort of sometimes dress them up or have props. And here you can see um, this undergraduate, Reginald Sothi, he's the one on the left, um, and, uh, <coughs> who was also very keen on photography. They used to go on photography expeditions together. And, uh, and this, was, uh, this was three years before Darwin. And, uh, and uh, uh, this, it's quite a remarkable picture, I think, the way, the way it's posed. It's a very interesting one. Of course, the new dean had four children, three daughters, and, uh, um, Edith, Lorena, and Alice. And here they are. We always think of Alice, don't we, as a sort of fair-haired girl in a, in, a, in a blue dress. But in fact, Alice had, had dark, short dark hair, and uh, not as, the, as Tenniel had, had portrayed her. And um, so there are several pictures of the little uh, children. Uh, uh, he, he also took lots of... Um, photographs of, of boys as well as girls. Uh, here's one of them playing around with some cherries. Um, and his most famous um, photograph is Alice dressed as, as, as a beggar girl, which uh, Tennyson describes as the most beautiful photograph he'd ever seen. So there are lots and lots of, of interesting photographs. There are books of his photographs well worth looking at. And in fact, um, in 1859, I think, or was it seven? 1857, um, he wrote a comic poem called Hiawatha's Photographing. The famous Longfellow poem of Hiawatha had come out in 1855 uh, with its rhythm da 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 as a skit on Hiawatha, um, Lewis Carroll uh, wrote um, a whole poem about how Hiawatha, with his camera, uh, was trying to photograph a rather dysfunctional f family. And every, every photograph went wrong for a different reason. It's, it's quite an entertaining uh, poem. It's, it started off... From his shoulder, Hiawatha took the camera of Rosewood, made of sliding folding Rosewood, neatly put it all together. In its case, it lay compactly, folded into nearly nothing. But he opened out the hinges, pushed and pulled the joints and hinges, till it looked all squares and oblongs, like a complicated figure in the second book of Euclid. <laughs> right, so now we've got to Euclid. That brings us on to, on to his, uh, his mathematics. But don't worry. Um, most of his early writings on mathematics uh, were for undergraduates, um, and in particular uh, in geometry. Uh, he was fascinated by, by, by traditional Euclidean geometry. Um, but before I talk about Euclid, um, here's something he wrote about Pythagoras' theorem. You're all familiar with Pythagoras' theorem, I hope. It's about, rectangle, about, right, about right angle triangles. And um, we normally think of it as an algebraic thing. You've got a right angle triangle and A squared plus B squared equals C squared. So in the 3, 4, 5, you've got 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared. In its original Greek version, it was not an they didn't have algebraic formally then. Uh, it was about the areas. The area, if you have a square on the here and a square on here and a square on the hypotenuse, 
the area of the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the areas on the other two sides, and that's how it, how it was originally. So it's a geometrical result, not an algebraic one. But Dodgson loved Pythagoras' theorem, and he later wrote, it's as dazzlingly beautiful now as it was in the day when Pythagoras first discovered it, and celebrated the event, it is said, by sacrificing a hecatomb of oxen. That's a whole oxen. Or is it... Well, I've, I've read different things. Some people say it's a hundred oxen, and some people say it's a whole oxen. Anyway, a method of doing honour to science has always seemed to me slightly exaggerated, uncalled for. <laughs> well, I can imagine oneself, even in these degenerate days, marking the epoch of some brilliant scientific discovery by having a convivial friend or two to join one in a beefsteak and a bottle of wine. But a hecatomb of oxen, it would produce a quite inconvenient supply of beef. <laughs> so even when he was writing about serious geometry, he... Uh, uh, he could be quite whimsical. But um, he wrote a lot about the elements, Euclid's elements. Now, Euclid's elements um, were written about 300 BC, possibly later. Uh, it's the most printed book after the Bible. It was used for teaching in universities and elsewhere for 2,000 years. It consists of 13 books. Some are on geometry, others are on arithmetic. Some of you will know that Euclid proved there are infinitely many primes, and that's in, in book nine. And there are various other things uh, to do with prime numbers and so on. Uh, the point is it's axiomatical and hierarchical. What that means is it starts off with a few basic axioms, um, and then from them proves some simple results, and then some more complicated results, and more and more complicated ones. A huge hierarchy of results, with everything depending on what was done before, in a completely rigorous and logical way. That was, that was the way. And, and, um, and here, for example, is book one, uh, which starts off with some axioms and some simple results and ends up with 47 and 48. 40. Book one, proposition 47 is Pythagoras' theorem. And you can see how it depends on everything beforehand. Um, now, because it encouraged um, logical thinking, it was wonderful training for the mind, was thought, and so it was widely used in Victorian times. Um, everyone had to do some Euclid. Um, you needed Euclid for the civil service, you needed it for the army. Uh, it wasn't, the best training for the mind was Latin and Greek, which of course everyone had to do at university. And then the next thing, if you did any science at all, it was, it was, it was Euclid's elements. So it was very widely used. There were dozens of Euclid texts produced in Victorian times. One by a guy called Isaac Todd Hunter uh, sold half a million copies. You know, there was really huge sales. And Dodgson, being very conservative and old-fashioned, strongly supported uh, Dodgson. But not everybody did. Everybody said, well, why should geometry be restricted to five axioms? Why shouldn't you be allowed to measure things? And there's a, a big reaction in the 1860s and 70s. Those people had to want to have more practical geometry. The geometry of surveying, for example. Uh, the geometry of, uh, as I say, real, real practical work. Um, rather than having to think things logically from just a few, a few axioms. Uh, if you're interested in, in Cambridge on Thursday afternoon, I'm giving a talk about, about what happened in the 1860s and 70s with the, with, with, with all this, uh, with, with the rivalry uh, between uh, Euclid and his modern rivals. Following Casablanca, I thought of calling my talk, here's looking at Euclid. <laughs> <coughs> uh, 
Uh, anyway, he, he did a lot of writing for undergraduates. He did a, a syllabus of plain algebraical geometry, as he called it, by Charles Dodgson. So this was to help students learn Euclid uh, and to make it, uh, you know, to present it uh, more easily for them. Um, and he, he wrote guides for students on trigonometry and algebra as well. But Whimsy was certainly around still. He wrote in 1865 the dynamics of a party call. <laughs> and this is deliberate because this was actually not a geometry text or a mechanics text. It was a skit uh, uh, on, well, it was uh, an entertaining pamphlet. He wrote 250 pamphlets on various things. This is an, uh, an in, uh, a pamphlet about the party elections, the, 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 um, the parliamentary elections that were taking place in 1865 in Oxford. Because um, in those days, you had multi-MP um, multi constituencies, multi-member constituencies. Oxford had two MPs at the time. Other constituents, some had one, as we do now. Some had as many as five. Uh, and Dodgson was very much in favour of proportional representation and, and of multi-member uh, constituencies. But he wasn't in favour of, of the current incumbent, who's, who's, who's Gladstone, who was very conservative. Uh, in fact, when I gave this lecture at Christchurch Hall, I was saying all these anti-Gladstone things. There was a picture of Gladstone looking right down the <laughs> looking very disapproving. Um, uh, no, so, no, Gladstone was far too liberal for, for him, and he wanted Gaythorne Hardy, um, who, was, um, who was much more conservative. Um, uh, anyway, in this he starts off with various so-called de definitions. I'll just show you some of these. Um, Euclid's element starts off... Let it be granted a line may be drawn from any point to any other point. One of his axioms, one of his, his, his postulates, is if you've got two points, you can join them by, by a line. Um, so, Dodgson's version is, let it be granted a speaker may digress from any one point to any other point. <laughs> a finite line may produ be produced to an extent. If you've got a line, you can extend it as far as you like in the same direction. That's what Euclid says. Uh, any finite argument, that's one finished and disposed of, may be produced to any extent in subsequent debates. Euclid, a circle may be drawn about any point and any distance from that point. A controversy may be raised, raised about any question and any distance from that question. <laughs> and then he gets on with his, defini his, his definitions. Um, here's Euclid. He de defines an angle, the inclination of two straight lines to one another which meet but not in the same direction. Um, Dodgson, plain anger is the inclination of two voters to one another who meet together but whose views are not in the same direction. <laughs> so he's got all these, <coughs> these kids. Here's Euclid. When a proctor meeting another proctor me makes the votes on one side equal to those in the others, the feeling entertained by each side is called right anger. <laughs> Obtuse anger is that which is greater than right anger. <coughs> and so on. And so that, that, that goes on, on in a, quite a jolly way. Uh, and then... It ends up with what looks like a, a geometrical result, a geometrical theorem. Uh, well, it's a construction. To remove a given tangent from a given circle and to bring another given line into contact with it. So you've got this circle meeting these two lines of a triangle, and you want to meet it to, so that this actually meets this one, but not that one any longer. Well, that doesn't look very exciting until you actually realise what, what, what's, what's going on. Because let's look at this circle. You've got let UNIV be a large circle, okay? centre is O, V of course being placed at the top, V of course is the Vice-Chancellor. Uh, 
And then the three sides are WEG, WH, and GH. And these are the three candidates, uh, Gladstone, Hethcock, and Gaythorne Hardy. Gaythorne Hardy was a conservative one that, that um, and the idea was that he should become member of parliament and should unseat Gladstone. So you want to withdraw this contact and, and create it here. And at one stage it said it would be, it would be found convenient uh, to project WEG to infinity. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's all, all these other, other geometry books that were being produced. And his most well-known writing was Euclid and his Modern Rivals, which is where he, uh, he took each of the, he took 13 geometry books uh, and analysed each of them really in a really detailed way, showing that each was inferior to Euclid. Uh, to make it more interesting and more for a general public, he set as a drama in four acts. There are four um, performers, well, four characters, Minos and Radamanthus, these are two of the gatekeepers to Hades who appeared here as Oxford examiners having to mark a whole lot of geometry scripts. Um, then and Minos, in the middle of the night, he gets so tired, he falls asleep and has a dream, and who should come to life in his dream but Euclid? Uh, he should come back to life. And there's also a German professor called Herr Niemand uh, who presents each of the rival books in turn, and then Minos uh, basically demolishes each of them. And, it, and a lot of it's very, very entertaining. But there's a lot of hard geometry in there, actually. And, and, he, and he argues his case, well, I mean, Dodgson really did know his Euclidean geometry very, very well. And he was a great supporter of Euclid against all these modern rivals. And he really explained why. <coughs> Around this time, he was writing lots of letters. Um, he used to write to, to uh, adults. He used to write to his, his child friends. Here's a puzzle letter. My dear Ina, though I don't give birthday presents till I may write a birthday card, etc., etc. <coughs> um, so, you know, he, he used to write write these things, and in fact, um, and some occasionally he had, he had mathematical things in here. Um, here was a letter that he wrote to a, a young boy, fourteen, um, called Wilton Ricks. And if I can find it, I've. Uh, uh, I should say that in the last 35 years of his life, he sent and received over 90,000 letters. Um, um, he used to spend hours every day writing letters and receiving them. And he he catalogued them all. He actually had a he, you know, he got a list of... Uh, he kept copies of the ones he sent, and, and, and there's a list of all the, th all the things he, he sent and received. So, so he sent and received uh, certainly tens of thousands of letters in the last 35 years of his life. Um, some were to his brothers and sisters or distinguished figures of the time. Many were to child friends. Um, here's one that he wrote uh, on algebra to young Wilton Ricks. Honoured sir, understanding you to be a distinguished algebraist, that is, distinguished from other algebraists by different face, different height, etc., <laughs> I beg to submit to you a difficulty which distresses, you, distresses me much. If x and y are each equal to 1, it is plain that 2 times x squared minus y squared equals 0. These are equal to 1, that's 0. And also that 5 times x minus y is equal to 0. Hence, 2 times x squared minus y squared is 5 times x minus y. Now divide each side of this equation by x minus y, remembering, of course, that x squared minus y squared is x minus y times x plus y. That cancels, gives you 2 times x plus y is equal to 5. 
But x and y are each e e equal to 1, so x plus y is 2, so you have that 2 times 2 is equal to 5. <laughs> he carries on. Ever since this painful fact has been forced upon me, I have not slept more than eight hours a night and have not been able to eat more than three meals a day. <laughs> I trust you will pity me and will kindly explain the difficulty to your obliged, Lewis Carroll. <laughs> Well, he was also doing other writing, and of course, on July the 4th, 1862, it was the famous um, excursion up to Godstow, the rowing trip with the three little girls. And, uh, and he always used to tell them stories. He used, to, he used to take them around Oxford. He used to take them to the new university museum. That's where they saw the dodo uh, and all the dinosaurs. Um, and... Uh, uh, and he, he took them to the, uh, later to, to, to Keeble Chapel because and, 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 uh, that was a new college then. Um, and this was, and after this trip where he, he told the Alice story, Alice said, oh, do write it up. You know, it's a wonderful story. And, I, and so he spent the next two years writing it up. And, uh, and this is Alice's Adventures Underground, which, appeared, which he pre presented to Alice in 1864. Um, and uh, it's full of allusions. I mean, the Hatter actually did refer to a particular Hatter in, uh, uh, in High Street. And here you can see, um, so it's, it's Dodgson, the three girls, and Reverend Robinson Duckworth, a fellow of Trinity College. They were the ones who went on the trip. So the Duckworth came out to be the duck. Uh, Lorena, the sister, became the lorry, which is a sort of parrot. Uh, Edith became the eagle. And Dodgson himself... Dodo, Dodgson, that was a dodo. And uh, so there are lots of allusions. <coughs> uh, and the book was eventually published, but not with Dodgson's own drawings, but with, with Tenniel's in 1865. Actually, it was badly printed, so it had to be withdrawn and came out again in 1866. <coughs> anyway, I'm sure you all know the well known story, we don't know if it's true or not, that Queen Victoria was so charmed uh, by the book that she said, send me the next book that Mr. Carroll produces, and was a bit surprised to get an elementary treatise on determinants, <laughs> with her application to simultaneous linear equations and algebraic geometry. <laughs> she was not amused. <laughs> um, and uh, so this was his, really his only work on algebra, and I won't go into what determinants are, but, uh, but basically he was concerned with solving simultaneous equations, and they're a sort of a mathematical device used to, to help with that. With that. And, uh, and, and the, the, it, the book did not sell very well because he actually made up his own notation and everything. It, was, it, it had a lot of interesting stuff in it, and in fact there's a, a, a certain well-known result, well-known to mathematics students, they made it in their first year, about when you can solve systems of equations, um, which is um, sometimes credited to other people, but the first time it appeared in print was in Dodgson's book. Uh, it was discovered independently by several people, including himself, but the first time it appeared in print was here. So I think it was quite an important book, but it didn't have much, much influence. Uh, so that, that takes us to 1867. How am I doing for time? Um, I've got another quarter of an hour. I've got some more things to say, or there's time for questions. Perhaps I can say a bit more, and then um, since I'm doing a book signing, you know, if you've got questions, to come up after. Can I go on for a few, for a few, more, a few more minutes? Uh, and then if you've got questions, as I say, come and ask me.
privately afterwards. I know I'm breaking all the rules, but uh, is that allowed? Yeah. That's all right. <coughs> okay. Well, it's so fascinating all I'm saying. Well, I, <laughs> I'm fascinated. I don't care about you. Lot. <laughs> Two things happened in 1867, 1868. One is that, that Christchurch, instead of being run by the canons, uh, actually uh, initiated governing body, and so. Dodgson, of course, uh, being well established there, was part of the governing body and was involved with things like, like voting for lecturers and being involved with um, choosing architects for, for, for buildings and so on. Uh, it was also in the following year that his father died and, um, <coughs> and, and of course, there's this, this entire family that he felt responsible for. Uh, and in, in eventually, he, 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 they bought this house, the Chestnuts in Guildford, which is where he used to go and spend Christmas, is in fact where he eventually died. He used to have his summer holidays in, in Eastbourne, but uh, Guildford was the family home uh, from, from then on. Here's his room, he, his room at Christchurch. I said a room, he had a suite of ten rooms. Can you imagine Don's having ten rooms now? And it's, it included a dark room you know, for his, his, his photography and, and everything. This is now the, the, the middle, common, middle common room at Christchurch. But it was while sort of deciding on which architects to have for, for building and, which, and which, who to appoint for, for, for lectureships that he got involved with methods of voting. And possibly some of his most important writings are, are, are on, on the theory of voting. Um, because he felt very strongly that all the ways that we, we use for voting are flawed. First past the, the post is a very flawed system. The, the uh, single transferable vote is very flawed. Uh, and, and for each of these, he looked at each of these in turn and actually came up with examples for why they are unsatisfactory. I'll just show you the one for um, a simple majority. Uh, the idea is that supposing you had four candidates, A, B, C, D, and you had 11 voters. Um, so the first one uh, ranks the candidates A, C, D, B. And so does the second and the third. The fourth one ranks them B, A, C, D, B, A, C, D, and so on. Uh, which candidate is the best? So that's, that's what um, one, one has to decide. Well, with the first pass the post system, who wins? B wins, okay? Because B has four votes and A only has three. But A is clearly the best candidate, because A is chosen first by three of them, and second by all the rest. And yet B wins, even though more than half of the voters had put them bottom. So you know, that shows that the whole study of voting was quite complicated. It was studied by Condorcet in France in, in the late 18th century. But Dodgson did some really interesting work uh, on this. Sadly, uh, he never um, wrote a book on it. He had planned to. And some of you know the philosopher Sir Michael Dummett, the expert on Frege. And he later remarked, it is a matter for the deepest regret that Dodgson never completed the book he planned to write on the subject. Such was the lucidity of his exposition and mastery of this topic that seems possible that had he published it, the political history of Britain would have been significantly different. Of course, he knew people in high places because you know, most politicians of the time had been to Christchurch and he'd, and, and he'd known them as students and, and, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and Dodgson was the one that really pushed the idea that um, no vote should be counted 
until all the polls are closed. That wasn't the case before then. Of course, it's not the case in, in America for, for, for geographical reasons. Uh, but but Dodgson pushed that, and eventually that came into this country. And he was also a strong uh, um, proponent of proportional representation, as I said earlier. Another thing he looked at was tennis tournaments. Uh, he, uh, he was somewhat dismayed. That's Wimbledon of the day. Um, he was somewhat uh, dismayed that a friend of his had been... Um, uh, had been in a tennis tournament and, and, and saw people a lot better, a lot worse than him coming, uh, getting the second and third prize. Um, and uh, because there was no seeding in those days. And so what Dodgson did is he, he came up with this example. Um, he said, well, supposing you've got 16 candidates and the 16 players, the best one is one, the next is two, and so on. And, and, and in the first round, one will beat two, three will beat four, five will beat six, and so on. So the odd numbers survive the first round. Uh, after the second round, you've got one, five, nine, and 13. Third round, one and nine. One, of course, wins. The right, <coughs> right person wins. But the person who wins the second prize actually was in the lower half of the, of the ranking. And so he, he worked out a sort of combinatorial uh, way of actually sorting out the matches so that the best three candidates would win first, second, and third prizes. And, uh, and I think the idea of seeding probably came from, from there. There are just a couple of more things I want to do. Well, one is um, his mathematical puzzles. It's all been far too serious up to now. Um, and I'll just show you one of these, um, which may or may not have, he may, not, may not have invented, but he certainly invented a, a version of it. And it's, it's the... Um, and he, said, he showed this... He did some teaching at... At a school just opposite Christchurch, and he used recreational ideas to teach recreational puzzles to teach mathematical ideas. Uh, he was one of the first people to do this, in fact. And I mean, here's one that many of you will know. Uh, let me. Can you hold on to this? But let's. Uh, yes. Uh, don't look at it inside it yet. So I'd like someone um, to give me a three-digit number, um, and the first and last digits by, must differ by two or more. Okay. So, so someone give me a number. 147 is a brilliant choice. <laughs> we haven't met before, have we? No. I mean, I, I don't... Whatever. Okay. You then reverse it. That gives you 741. Okay. And I did it this way around because I'm going to su subtract the smaller one from the larger one. Okay. Uh, so said Dodgson. Now, this, is, this is a difficult bit. Okay. Right. Is that right? Now you reverse that. Okay, now we add. Carry one. Okay, so we get 1089. Would you like to open the envelope, please? <laughs> and you can see it says 1089. Okay. You don't have to applaud me. I'm not going to do it again, because you always get 1089. In fact, when I was 11, I, I, tried, I came across the puzzle and tried to prove why you always get 1089, and I, I failed. Uh, but I tried again two years later, and I succeeded. I got that real sort of eureka or aha uh, thing for, for solving a mathematical puzzle. So I, I did, did actually manage to explain why it works, and it's, it's explained in the book. Dodgson certainly knew this, um, but um, whether he invented it or not, I don't know, but he certainly invented the pound shillings and pence version. So for those of you... 
um, who remember pounds, shillings and pence, where the 12 pence and a shilling and 20 shillings and a pound seems jolly complicated now, doesn't it? Um, uh, you, you, you start with any sum of money, reverse it, subtract, reverse and add. You always get 12 pounds, 18 shillings and 11. And uh, so, you know. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, to make it work. Uh, by two or more. Yeah, more than one. Uh, here's this monkey puzzle um, thing that's quite famous. Uh, you've got a pulley, you've got a rope over it, you've got a weight, and you've got a monkey. They, they balance each other exactly. Okay? The monkey starts to climb the rope. What happens to the weight? Does it go up or down? Uh, does it go up or down with uniform velocity, or does it accelerate? And all the senior common rooms in, in Oxford were really arguing like mad about this. They all, they all came up with different answers. I'll leave it as an exercise for the reader. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a poem which may have been by him. It's certainly been attributed to him. Um, it's a symmetric poem in that you can read it either horizontally or vertically. Um, it's really hard to construct these things. Um, so, I often wondered when I cursed, often feared where I would be, wondered where she'd yield her love. When I yield, so will she. I would her will be pitied. Cursed be love, she pitied me. So you can go forwards or downwards. And uh, it's not great poetry, but, uh, <laughs> um, but there we are. <coughs> uh, he also wrote a, a book of, puzzle, of mathematical st of stories which have mathematical puzzles hidden in them called Tangled Tale. Again, they're very entertaining. I won't go into it now, but I'll, ju I'll just read you the preface. And you, to my pupil, and you can try and work out who his pupil was. Beloved pupil, tamed by thee, a dish, subtract, multiplication. Great poetry, this. Division, fraction, rule of three, attest thy deaf manipulation. Then onward, let the voice of fame from age to age repeat thy story. Till thou hast won thyself a name, exceeding even Euclid's glory. So, who was the pupil that he wrote this to? If you take the second letter of each line, you get Edith Ricks. And she was the sister of Wilton Ricks, to whom he'd written that algebra letter. And in fact, um, uh, and he was trying to persuade her to, to, to study maths in Oxford. But in fact, she went to a modern university in the Fens instead. <coughs> <coughs> I'd like to conclude by talking about what he did in the last few, few years, uh, and this is his work on logic, because he was, he was fascinated uh, by logic. Having thrown my notes on the, on the floor, um, I'm going to have to make this up as I go along, but there we are. Oh, here we are. Um, you may remember the scene with Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Um, Alice comes across them, and they're bickering, as always. And Tweedledum says, I know what you're thinking about, but it isn't so, no how. Contrarywise, if it was so, it might be, and if it were so, it would be, but as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. Well, he'd been interested in logic ever since he had to do it for his classics finals, and he got involved with symbolic logic. Now, symbolic logic is, goes back to Aristotle, and uh, you get premises like um, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, and then from then you eliminate the common term, and you get, therefore, Socrates is, is, is mortal. Um, and Dodgson thought these syllogisms were an ideal way of training the mind of adults and also of young children as well. And um, so he wrote the game of logic, and he, he actually found a way of solving these things, uh, which I won't go into de detail now.
but it was involved with red counters and, and grey counters, and you put them on a board and, um, to represent the various premises, and then by moving them around in a certain way, you could actually work out the conclusion. And, uh, and he, he used this quite effectively. His, uh, he then wrote it up as a more serious book for adults called um, Symbolic Logic, um, and here, this is the frontispiece, um, uh, a syllogism worked out. So supposing your first premise is, and they're always entertaining, Dodgson's ones. that story of yours about your once meeting the sea serpent always sets me off yawning. Also, you know that I never yawn unless when I'm listening to something totally devoid of interest. And you can represent these with the various um, circles. The book will show you how to do it if you want to know. Um, and then at the end, you deduce from these that that story of yours about your once meeting the serpent is totally devoid of interest. Uh, and he showed, using his counters, that how, how to do these. And in fact, um, he then went to more uh, terms. Here's, here's a straightforward one with, th with three premises. Again, quite entertaining. Babies are illogical. Nobody is despised who can manage a crocodile. Illogical persons are despised. Well, this one you can work out in your head, because if babies are illogical and illogical persons are despised, then it means that babies are despised. But if nobody is despised who can manage a crocodile, you deduce that babies cannot manage crocodiles. Okay? Uh, and the first 60 of these he, he, he produced went up to 10 premises. Here's one with five. No kitten that loves fish is unteachable. No kitten without a tail that will play with a gorilla. Kittens with whiskers always love fish. No teachable kitten has green eyes. No kittens have tails unless they have whiskers. And then using his counters and working through all this, you can actually deduce the conclusion from this is that no kittens with green eyes will play with a gorilla. <laughs> uh, and, and these were all, all, all published. He used to go into the Oxford High School. He used to go uh, into LMH to see, to see students. And he used to get them working on all these things with the counters and everything and sorting out these syllogisms. Excellent uh, training for the mind for both children and adults. And he started working on the second book. And in the second book, uh, which didn't get published because he died um, before it, it came out, but the second book, uh, Extracts Have Survived. And he had examples with 10, with 10 premises, with 40 premises. His longest had 50 premises, uh, four, 50 different sentences, and you had to work them all out and, and come up with a conclusion. Quite remarkable, and of course they're very entertaining the way he writes them, but there's some, some good mathematical logic underneath it. He also came up with a couple of paradoxes, and, and I mean, if, if, if his second book had come out, he might have been regarded as one of the best British mathematical logicians between the time of George Boole and Bertrand Russell. But Bertrand Russell in, in particular said that two of his paradoxes, which are you know, really quite ingenious, uh, were, were really quite, quite interesting and important. But sadly, he died, and, um, the, and all the, the stuff he wrote about logic uh, disappeared and didn't surface again until the 1970s, and, uh, by which time, of course, it, ha it had no influence. Anyway, he, uh, he, he died. Here's his posthumous portrait in, in Christchurch. Here's his, the stained glass window at Dalsbury, a whole lot of stained glass windows showing him. And... Um, uh, and so that's the end, end of the story. He, he, he went for Christmas with the family in Guildford and he caught pneumonia and died at the age of 66. Um, I, I'd just like to end up, though, with, um, appropriately with his, his self-portrait um, in, um, in the 1860s or 70s. Uh, there was a college ball going on. 
very noisy, and he didn't really want to get involved with that. So he's, he's, he he um, um, he hid himself away, and and he he wrote a, a double acrostic. You know, one of these puzzles where you solve it, and the first letters give you one word, and the last letters give you another. Here is one of the the verses. Uh, which has been described as his own self-portrait. Yet what are all such gaieties to me whose thoughts are full of indices and thirds? X squared plus 7x plus 53 equals 11 thirds. What more can you say? Thank you very much. <laughs>